Brothers and sisters, if I could get you to open up your bulletin, please, to today's reading, which is uh, out of Corinthians 11, and it's going to be verses 23 to 26, and whenever you're ready, please rise as we read God's Word. This is God's Word. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Father, we are overwhelmed by your love, God, and we're so thankful that you purchased a people for yourself that despite our sinfulness, God, despite us being dead in our trespasses and sins, you breathe life into us because of your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Son be magnified this afternoon in the hearts of all those who believe. And may those who don't believe, God, come to faith in Jesus Christ and have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I, I frequently get asked during my conversations with, uh, with people whether... Uh, I'm from California, or what part of California I'm from, and, and that's never an easy um, question to answer. Uh, for many people it is, they could say they're from L.A., from Fresno, from Chicago, um, New York, whatever the case may be, but for me I have a longer, more complex story that I have to tell, and it begins for me in Central America. And I was born November 20th, 1979, in San Salvador which is the capital of El Salvador. And my mom was 28 years old when she made the journey from Central America with my sister, who was almost two, and with me. I was six months old. And I recently asked her to retell that story to Jack and me when we went over there to, to visit her. I've heard it when I, when, you know, I was young. I heard a little bit, part, bits and parts of it. Uh, but I asked her to retell it to me because I wanted to just remember it and also be able to share that with my kids and uh, just have some sort of historical document uh, of how we got to where we are today. Um, and I got to tell you, man, her faith was so rooted in Christ. It was just, I was amazed at the things that she went through um, and her faith, how it was, she just trusted God and how God cared for her and for us and he brought us to where we are today. And so anytime someone asks, I sort of have to give them a little bit of that. But I also tell them that I'm all over California. I lived in, in West Hollywood, in South Central L.A., when it was called South Central L.A., in Pacoima. Uh, I lived in Oxnard. And from Oxnard, we went over to this little town in the Central Valley called Sanger, population 15,000. And it's just east of Fresno. Um, and so if you're interested, they've ballooned up to 30,000. You might want to go over there. It's a booming metropolis. But... The reason why we moved around a lot was because my dad was a Spanish ministry pastor. He was an ordained minister, and wherever the church said for us to go, we would go. So they said, go to Pacoima. We went to Pacoima. 
From there, we went to Oxnard. And from Oxnard, we eventually ended up in the Central Valley. And the Central Valley, the main mission that the church wanted uh, for us as a family is to go plant churches in the migrant community. And my dad did that. We did that as a family. So um, we moved around a lot. And all of my young life, all of my young life, I grew up with people who looked like me, who ate like me, who, who lived like me. Um, the towns that we lived in were predominantly Hispanic. Uh, the high school that I went to was predominantly Hispanic. And we didn't go outside of that circle. Um, it's not because we didn't want to. It's just it never happened. Um, it's just the way we grew up. And when I was 17 years old, circumstances and certain events in my life led me to joining the military. And so at 17, I found myself in, in Great Lakes, Illinois, in, in bone-chilling weather between November and January. We went through blizzards and rain, and the rain was sideways from all over the place. I felt like needles hitting me in the face. I and mean, it was crazy cold. And we had to shovel stuff at, at 2 o'clock in the morning just because of punishment. It was just crazy the way they treated us. At any rate, um, I spent 13 weeks there. 13 weeks eating, sleeping, going to the bathroom, eat, uh, you know, training, everything you could think of with 80 other guys from all over the nation and from all over the world. Um, and it was crazy. It was a culture shock for me because I grew up just with people that looked like me, right? And so here uh, I, I was exposed to people from all over the nation, like I said, from, uh, from New York, from Tennessee, from Minnesota, from Miami, from L.A., from Texas, from Russia, and from Africa. And so it, it's just anything you could think of, right? That's what the military does. It, it brings unity and diversity, and it kind of forces you to be able to, expose, to be exposed to, to different types of people. And so my first duty station uh, was down in San Diego aboard the USS Essex. And this ship was uh, a large helo deck that had approximately uh, 4,000 sailors and marines. And like I said, it's just a melting pot of people, different peoples from all over the world. But this was the first place, really, that I was exposed to racism and racial slurs. Um, and I'll never forget it. And I never felt like it was systemic, right? I never felt like it, I was being held down because of my ethnicity or who I was. Because I was very successful in the military. I was successful. I was promoted. I was rewarded. And it was a good thing for me. I was going to stay in for 20 years, but God had other plans. But while I was there, I was exposed to certain people that didn't like me just because of who I was and where I was from. Um, and they said some, some very hurtful things to me that I'll never forget. Um, I've been called a spick and a wetback and a beaner. And some of those things don't apply to me, but you know, they just group me in with everybody else. So not only did I personally experience it, but I saw it. On the morning of September 11th, um, uh, many of us, we were getting ready to go out for two weeks to train because of a longer deployment that we were going to do later on in the year. And like everybody else, we heard what happened in the morning. The, the Twin Towers were on fire. Planes crashed into it. So we ran into our, our duty station, turned on the TV, and sure enough, we were stunned and shocked like the rest of the world. We were watching it uh, as this was unfolding. And the media, you know, they started speculating this was probably terrorism. And everything that we've been trained for in the military taught us that this is something that only happened overseas. And it was probably someone from Middle Eastern descent that did this. And in our unit, 
there was a native, a guy from, from Pakistan. It's not the Middle East, but he was Muslim. And he was watching in shock and, and, and just as stunned as everybody else. And one of the guys in our unit walked up to him and spit in his face. He spit in his face and then walked away. And all Ahmad could do was just wipe the spit off his face and, and walk away too. And we were shocked. You know, we were horrified, but we didn't do anything about it. And that's probably something that I'll regret for a very long time. But the crazy thing to me was that we were supposed to be in the military, wearing the same uniform, we were supposed to be under one flag, fighting for our country, we were willing to die for each other, but here we were divided. We were divided. And this was over 17 years ago. And if you look at today's climate and atmosphere here in the United States, one would argue that it's probably just as bad. Some people may say that it's worse. Today we are culturally and politically uh, divided. The government is divided, right? We are divided by gender, religion, class, rich or poor, ethnicity, and even citizenship status. Right or wrong, it doesn't matter where, where your opinion is, right or wrong, we're divided. Now, let me make one thing clear. I don't think that being diverse in your culture and knowing other languages or being proud of where your, your, your background, what your background is, is wrong because that is beautiful. God created us like that, right? He created us with different languages and peoples from all over the world. That's the beauty of God's creation. He created us like that. But some people take that and use that as a weapon to divide people. And that's what we see. So no matter how much we want to be united, no matter how much we want to have peace and unity, somehow we always find a way to divide ourselves. Now, what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians and the Lord's Supper? I asked myself the same question when I was reading this, but it was brought to my attention. Well, before I say what I'm going to say about the Corinthian church, I want to preface it with the fact that Paul, in the first chapter, he called the Corinthians saints. He called them he said, to those who are sanctified, called to be his people, not lacking spiritual gifts, blameless until the end. This was a positional truth. Regardless of what was going on in the church, they were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. They were Christians, bought into a family that belonged to God. But if you've ever spent any time in, in the book of Corinthians, you would know that they were a troubled and divided church. If you don't know, let me... Uh, give you some headlines. Here we read that there were divisions over their leaders. Some were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow you know, Apollos, I follow Jesus Christ. So there were divisions amongst their church on who they should follow. There were divisions between Jewish and Gentile believers. There were lawsuits between believers. They were suing each other, going outside of church and taking you know, uh, offenses outside of, of the church leadership. There were divisions about food being uh, eaten that were sacrificed to, uh, to idols. And to top it all off, there was divisions in class warfare at the Lord's Supper. Some of those, they would come together on, on Sunday or on the Lord's Day and have communion. And, and some who had more would go off and have their own private dinners and would eat and drink and get drunk while the poor amongst them left hungry. So they were divided. And this was a Christian church that was divided. And so, why were they divided? What was, what was the problem? What was driving them to be like this towards each other? 
Well, recently I came across a Dilbert comic strip. And if you're not familiar with that comic strip, you would know that it's office humor. And so walking on patrol, I came across this, uh, this, uh, this, this comic strip. And Dilbert is an engineer. So in this comic strip, Dilbert walks, walks into his manager's office and he says, I finished the post-mortem on that failed project. And his manager asks, what was the problem? And he said, people. And, and the manager says, or asks, the wrong people? And Dilbert says, don't overthink it. And so when I read it, I, left, I laughed out loud. I did. I took a picture of it and I saved it because whether you have the right people on the job or the wrong people, we fall short. You know, whenever someone makes a mistake, there's that old saying, oh, I'm only human. I'm only human. You've got to forgive me. I make mistakes. And it's true. We fall short. So why do we fall short? And I think everybody knows this. It's no, no secret. And it's one thing. Sin. Sin is what unites humanity. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what cultural background you come from, what color your skin is, whether you're rich or poor. We are all guilty before God. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are. When we all stand before the judgment seat of God, we are all united in our sin and we need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. But it always wasn't like this, right? In the beginning, if we go back to, to Genesis, we read that God created the heavens and the earth and it was a good thing and that He created Adam and Eve and they had good fellowship with God and their marriage was good and perfect, sinless. And then Adam and Eve sinned and introduced the fall to every single aspect of our lives and every single aspect of creation. So where do we see the effects of sin and brokenness and division the most? Well, I would argue that you see it the most in our family. You know, recently on New Year's Day, Jackie and I were having a conversation about the holidays. It was just, we were looking back at Thanksgiving and how, how good of a time we had. We went up to visit my family. Uh, we were looking forward to Christmas. Christmas went well. We had New Year's. We had a blast. But kind of over, overshadowing this whole Christmas season was a fight between Jackie's older sister and Jackie's mom. And then I stepped in between that fight and made it worse. <laughs> and I thought I was going to help. I really thought so. I was going to, here I go. I'm going to use wisdom. And I, I ended up, you know, just making it worse. But thank God that we were able to talk to each other and we, uh, we spoke and we forgave each other and I asked for forgiveness and I said perhaps I could have used a different approach. You know, and, and so we were talking about how broken our family was. You know, Jackie comes from a broken family. I come from a broken family. My parents were divorced at 16 and they don't even talk to each other. It's been over 20 years. They don't say one word to each other. They don't want to talk to each other. And so how many of us have that reality in our lives. We have a broken relationship maybe with a brother or a sister. We don't talk to them. Maybe words were exchanged and, and you just don't say anything. What about a, a, a broken relationship with a mom or dad? You know? And when you don't have a relationship with a parent like that, there's a huge gap in our soul and we go around our entire lives seeking affirmation. And I, I realize that and I feel it in my life. You know, my dad had to leave when I was 16. It was terrible. And it still affects me. Some of the things that I do to today are because of that. 
Or how many of us have a failed relationship in our past that we thought was going to head somewhere, it was going to be a meaningful relationship, and it was going to go somewhere, but we ended up with a broken heart. How many of us have seen or experienced divorce, which is one of the most traumatic things that someone, that someone could go through besides experiencing death? What about those who suffer in silence with a loveless marriage? And, and we pray about it, and we ask God for guidance, and we ask God for, 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 for some help here. We ask God to guide us, to help us reconcile the relationships, to be able to, to, to build that bridge between us, and there's too much pain. They don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. And then time goes on, and years go by, and words aren't said, and it deepens the divide, and we hate that. We hate that, right? We long for peace and unity, and we want for our families to be reconciled, and we don't want that brokenness in our lives. So what hope do we have? What do we do? We try, but we fall short. Well, in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 9, there's a beautiful story of a broken man who comes from a broken family. And at five years old, he lost his grandfather Saul and his father, Jonathan, in battle. They were killed. And in the family's haste to take Mephibosheth, that's his name, I only say it once because I don't know if I can say it again. And the family's haste to take him out of there, they dropped him and he became permanently disabled. He was a broken man physically. He couldn't move. So not only did he lose his family, he lost his inheritance, uh, he, he was a broken man physically and in spirit. He couldn't take care of himself. He was tucked away in some no-name town in Judea and he was done. And then... We read that David's kingdom was established and that you know, his enemies had been defeated and he sat down to feast and celebrate, but he remembered a promise that he made to Jonathan long ago. He remembered that promise and he said, is there still anyone in Saul's house that I could show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And someone said, I know someone, Mephibosheth. And so David said, bring him to me. So as soon as Mephibosheth heard that David was calling him into his presence, Great fear took over his life. He thought for sure, everything that my grandfather did, it's coming on me, he's going to execute me, I'm done. And so when he comes before the throne of David, he throws himself before David, he lays himself completely out in front of him in fear, and he says, I am your servant. And David utters words of not vengeance and revenge and execution, but he, he says, do not fear, do not be afraid. And David restores everything that belonged to his family, his inheritance. And not only that, but he gave him a special seat at his table. So every time David would eat, Mephibosheth would go. And so, isn't this a beautiful picture of us? We are broken and shattered and forsaken by the fall. We are turned away. We are summoned by the king suddenly. And then we are lifted into the arms of the Savior, restored and forgiven of our sins. And he gives us a special seat at his table. Where it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, how broken your life is, how divided your family is, or how broken your relationships are. It doesn't matter how many sins you've accumulated over a lifetime or how sinful you feel today. You were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and now you are a valuable member of the family of God. So Jesus Christ is the only one that can unite a broken people, a broken world, and a forsaken And we read that, right? Paul reminds them in Corinthians, he pleads with them and he says, 
by Jesus' name, he says, by the name of Jesus Christ, be united in one mind and purpose and in spirit. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, he says? No. So why are you divided at, at church? Why are you bringing this sin into the camp? What are you doing? You don't understand what Christ has done for you, especially at the Lord's Supper. It has so much significance. The Lord's Supper, when we take it and when they took it, 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 had a, it was a proclamation of something great. Not only did Paul continue to admonish them and remind them what Christ had done at the cross, but he told them that this wasn't an ordinary dinner. This wasn't something that you would come in and just eat and drink and just go away. No, this wasn't an ordinary dinner. This was a proclamation of the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins to all who believe. To all who believe. And we read that, right? In verse 24, he reminds them before that, he says, that for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. My body, which is for you. For who? For the Corinthian church, for you, for me, for the entire world. This is a proclamation of salvation to all broken and hurting people. It doesn't matter where you stand. We all fall short. The fall affected all of us. We all need God's saving grace. And even though we may divide ourselves through ethnicity, class, language, here is the good news, friends. The good news is that Jesus Christ died and purchased a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He did not discriminate. His mission was and is to seek and save the lost. We read that in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever believes in him may uh, not perish but have everlasting life. He made a way for all people. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And it is Christ crucified and Christ alone that can unite a broken people. And so we know that, we hear that, he reminds them of that, and he moves on to verse 25. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, there's so much significance in that blood and covenant. That language of blood and covenants uh, goes back to the Old Testament. So let's rewind, let's go all the way to the night of the Exodus when they were uh, getting ready to go the next day and be delivered from Egypt. You know, it has a roots in the Passover sacrifice, the night, of the, the night that the blood of the lamb was smeared on the doorposts of those house, of the houses that they were in. And this signified protection over the Israelites from the angel of death. So fast forward thousands of years to Jesus', Jesus time and he's, he's sitting there with the disciples and he's about to have the Passover dinner with them and it has roots in the Old Testament and, and he, instead of remember or reminding them of the Exodus, he was calling them to a, a better Passover. He was calling them to the forgiveness of their sins and the deliverance from death through the true Passover lamb, which is Jesus Christ. And now the blood of Christ isn't smeared on some house in some obscure place in the Middle East. 
but it's, it's smeared on the blood of every single, on the, on the heart of every single believer. And because of that, we are united in Christ. We are one family, born again with one bloodline, called the children of the Most High God, regardless of who we are, where we're from, how many times we've failed, how many sins we've accumulated over a lifetime, how broken and terrible our relationships are, how broken our families are. Christ has torn the dividing wall of hostility and has forgiven all of our sins. And now he has given us a new heart, a new mind, a new citizenship, and a new family. All we have to do is look around and see the diversity and unity in God's church. You see that here. You see that in in, in our fellowship. We are united only because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So what does this mean for us? Three things, and I'll finish. One, delight in the great salvation that, that Christ has won for you. Delight in it, rejoice in it, and rejoice in the fact that, that no matter how broken your life is or how sinful you, you may think you are, or today or even how you look back at your past and you see how broken it is, it doesn't matter your sins. Today, if you look unto Christ and if you believe and have faith, your sins are forgiven completely. You are justified in Christ, declared not guilty, and you are now called the the child of the Most High. That's a reality. Regardless of what may happen in your life, that is a positional truth that you didn't earn, that Christ won for you. So delight in that. Number two, and this is probably the hardest one that I have to consider myself every day. Consider the divisions in your family the divisions at work or maybe here at church and seek to reconcile those relationships the best that you can. It's not easy. It's not easy. But I want you to remember one thing, that we were once enemies of God. We were once alienated and far off, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were his enemies. But Christ reconciled us to himself and he purchased us by his blood. And now we are friends we are dear, dearly beloved children of God and we have a special seat at his, at his table. And so Christ and God calls us to do the same. Think about those divisions in your family, about those divisions at work or even here at church and seek to reconcile those relationships. It's a challenge, but I think we could do it by, by the grace of Jesus Christ. And lastly, number three, and this is where verse 26 uh, is much sweeter. We read, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If we have been united in Christ, if we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, if we are now one, if we are united together, despite our differences and despite the things that may fall in our lives and and how we fall short, then we are one people and we have one mission and one mission only and that is to take this good news to others to take this good news to others and proclaim the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins to all broken and hurting and divided people that's our mission that's our mission So let me remind you, friends, to delight in the great salvation that Christ has purchased for you. 
If you don't know him today, I say look unto him, have faith and believe, and you will have eternal life. But for those who believe, rejoice in the fact that you are purchased and eternally secure in Jesus Christ. Think about the divisions in your family or in your workplace or at church and do your best to reconcile those relationships. Try your best. It may not happen. We don't live in a perfect world and we just we have to try. And lastly, remember that every time we gather together, we proclaim the, the Lord's resurrection and it is our duty as Christians to take this to others, to, save, to, to bring that message of salvation to all people. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, God, that, that you have purchased a people to yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That even though, God, we live in a broken and divided world, you are reversing that curse one believer at a time, bringing a people to yourself and uniting a, a, a church, God, that will bring glory to you on that day. May we live in light of that truth, O oh God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.